All right, Crip Nation, listen up. Bryce here, as always, with Pizza Mind. Uh, and we got a big announcement for you today. Actually, the biggest announcement we've ever had on Crypto 101 ever. And we are going to announce that we are having the Crypto 2020 Summit. That's 50 of the greatest minds in crypto sharing their predictions for the crypto market and all the technology that's going to be built and price predictions and all sorts of fun stuff for the year of 2020. So it's it's going to take place January 29th to January 31st. Uh, we're going to be with like the founders of Top Coins, almost all the Top Coins actually, uh, hedge fund managers, everybody. And they're going to be sharing the predictions. And the best part of this whole thing that we're hosting here, it's called Crypto 2020 Summit. It's virtual, so you could listen to all this stuff for free from the comfort of your own home. Uh, it's online. You just sign up. You go to www.crypto2020summit.com. Um, everybody who we've had on the show, they're all going to be there. It's all free. It's going to be a great time. you got to come join us, www.crypto2020summit.com, and come fill your dome with a bunch of knowledge, all sorts of fun predictions for the year 2020. So if you don't want to miss out, www.crypto2020summit.com and today we've got a great guest enjoy the show we love you Crypt Nation and we hopefully we'll see you there what is up good citizens of Crypt Nation I hope you guys are having a great morning noon or night wherever you are in the world just know you're in the right place because we got a pretty kick-ass episode today what do you say Pete's even if you're lost in time and don't know where you are, you're in the right place <laughs> because you're here with Crypto 101. And in the house, we have Neil Van Hughes from Blockfills, yes. who's going to educate us today on some trading things. And we're going to ask uh, a lot of interesting questions. I'm really excited to learn. Yes. Let's bring, it, let's bring him in, Bryce. Can we bring him in right now? Or do you got more? Uh, no, I mean, I'm just going to say Neil is the partner and director of sales and trading at Blockfills. And Neil, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. Oh man, we're gonna have a lot of fun because it's not so often uh, that we get graced with the presence of a big time trader. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know if you want to go right there, right to that, <laughs> but um, but uh, certainly have done uh, my fair share. Uh, but you know, really, we're we're just a growing company and uh, looking forward to to educate, uh, work with people, and and better the better the ecosystem for the future. Well, heck yeah. Um, so let's just start off at the top. Uh, what is OTC, over-the-counter trading, and more importantly, why is it such a vital component of both the traditional finance world and cr the crypto asset finance world? Yeah, sure. So r really, OTC trading is pretty simple. It, it's it's almost primitive in nature. Uh, <laughs> it uh, It's really just uh, two participants communicating together, uh, either via phone call, chat, conversation to agree upon a price and quantity at any place in time to, to purchase or sell any type of asset. Uh, OTC trading has been around you know, many years, many asset classes with a number of different institutions and uh, individuals. Uh, but you know, for us, uh, crypto trading uh, kind of really got uh, its footprint uh, on, a, on a bigger level uh, through OTC trading uh, in the last couple of years. That's really amazing. Yeah, so I mean, really, uh, OTC trading uh, was was brought up uh, for people to you know minimize their counterparty risk in this space. Uh, crypto has always been a little bit insecure, uh, depending on the participant uh, who's involved, and and I think what 
OTC in this space does is it allows people to understand who they're trading with, the security of trading with that counterparty, and knowing that the trades that they do will actually get done and, and they'll get delivered and, and people that they're trading with uh, you know, are, are qualified participants. And so really OTC trading became important when people were afraid to fund accounts uh, at exchanges or trade with people directly. And um, you know, certainly that's, that's benefited the larger ecosystem in crypto trading. So is OTC something that is kind of new or has it been around all this time since the beginning and uh, a lot of people are just learning about it now for, for, for larger for crypto, you mean? sums? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I would say that uh, OTC trading's probably been around uh, maybe three, three and a half years now. Uh, I would say that, you know, the market was probably pretty small uh, back in 2015, but 16 certainly 17 and all of 18 uh otc trading was probably one of the most dominant sources of volume uh, in crypto trading awesome i want to hear a story so i want to hear the story about maybe like the the craziest day ever trading bitcoin yeah or yeah let's let's start there craziest day ever trading bitcoin i mean cr- craziest day of trading bitcoin uh n- not really just speaking to the otc market but you know craziest day that i I personally have, have witnessed, you know, through you know our, our business block fills would be probably right around this time last year when uh, we are actually in London sponsoring the Finance Magnets Conference, which we're doing again uh, here this coming week, and uh, we were showcasing our liquidity in an electronic fashion, uh, which is our core business, and uh, we were up in this conference with a lot of other large competitors. And the market started breaking uh, through that 6,500, 7,000 level and started, heading, oh, and started yeah. heading south. And the market was moving as fast as I've seen it move uh, since I've participated in it. And uh, spreads on exchanges were blowing out to 200, maybe 150 to $250 wide on, on even a Bitcoin. Uh, some uh, exchange UIs were going down and clients couldn't even access them. Um, but our market was running and we were about uh, $50 wide on a thousand Bitcoin, which was uh, really revolutionary in what we were showcasing at the time. So when that market started to break, the activity was really unbelievable. And uh, at that time, really people were staring at our screens at the conference and and we were all just watching the market just you know fall apart. <laughs> and luckily, uh, a bid came in there at some point and it stabilized and Everybody was uh, trading around in that three thousand to six thousand range for for quite some time, uh, but that's definitely probably one of the one of the one of the craziest times I've I've watched in the market recently. So I mean, that's amazing. I, I vividly remember that day too, and everybody was kind of just losing their crap. But like, what is the? I mean, is there a reason, or was there a telltale sign that some, that the sixty five hundred level was going to break? Like, why does something like that happen? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, I think there's maybe a couple, a couple of things that go into all this. Certainly, uh, where market makers sit and where the risk is. Certainly, where uh, the appetite uh, from a supply and demand standpoint was. I think back then, if you look uh, at what was maybe some things going on behind the scenes, was miners were really having a tough time and they were trying to decide. You know, do they sell Bitcoin to stay in business? Can they find ways to finance growth to mine more? 
You know, do they hold Bitcoin? Uh, does Bitmain make a move into Bitcoin Cash? Right, like all these things were happening, and decisions were being made on the supply and demand front back then. And institutions were just, you know, getting on different sides of the the market. And, and I don't mean institutions by asset managers or banks or something like that. I mean, you know, the, the largest traders in the business, right? And so, you know, I think everyone just started to kind of see the market get a little complacent. And by then, there was just not a lot of demand on the buy side, and so the market went lower. And so that's the way I look at what happened. And you know, that's just my opinion. Um, but I certainly remember there being a lot of discussion from the mining community on what came next and where prices were going, and they they were starting to to get the jitters a little bit. Do you think news really plays that big effect in these orders? You know, whether they. I mean, we're talking like these huge, you know, one minute candles that can swing a price a thousand dollars one way or the other. Do you think the news really plays any kind of factor in that or is it just one person's opinion out of nowhere? Yeah, my, my 10 cents is that uh, news does not hold a ton of weight. Um, I, I think that there's guys always positioning. Uh, I, I think that uh, up until parts of this year, a lot of these larger orders were being done by you know, fairly unsophisticated principles on exchange. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of market makers have strategies that, um, that allow them to, to feel out those orders on exchanges and move back in the book and make these guys pay for a lot of slippage. And so when you talk about these, these large candles on exchange, I think they're done by, you know, unsophisticated participants and a lot of that has changed with smart order writing, routing, smart brokerages, you know, our uh, liquidity aggregation techniques, uh, off exchange volume, OTC trading, you know, a lot of that has gone away. And so I think news does not penetrate the market as much as I think, you know, uh, supply demand uh, does and, and where market makers are leaning. Um, so in this particular market, I, I really think that if I were to put a percentage on it, you know, market news drives price, I don't know, maybe at a 10 to 20% basis. I have so many questions for you. Um, <laughs> this is awesome. Okay. So I guess I'll start with like, who's your main customer? Are you typically liquidating uh, BTC and ETH for miners? And then the follow-up question to that is like, what is the average order size that you post both on the bid and yeah, the Yeah, those are great questions actually, because it's, it's vastly different than an exchange. We're not an exchange. We don't, have, we don't run an exchange business. Um, our customers... I would say the majority of OTC desks, you know, you know, serious OTC desks globally have access to our prices. I would say that uh, a lot of our traders are, are princ you know, principal trading desks, OTC desks, hedge funds, which are crypto only and, and traditional hedge funds, you know, really. And then the, uh, the brokerage business, right? There's a lot of other guys that are out there that use uh, bridge networks and, and APIs to give their clients access on a brokerage basis to crypto trading. And uh, those guys, you know, penetrate our prices. So those are the type of participants we have. The biggest traders are, without a doubt, you know, the guys that are handling uh, their, their risk uh, from from you know a number of different types of trading strategies. They could be trading uh, against derivatives. They could be trading OTC. They could be trading um, event-driven strategies, um, relative value strategies, etc. Um, so you know, those are the types of traders that we try to support the best. They're, they're definitely professional and, and institutional in nature. We, we obviously don't have a retail following. So, you know, that's that. 
And then I would just say that miners come in and do deals. You know, they definitely do deals to to get trades done to to you know to get some liquidity. Um, but we're we're really in the mining front. We're working with guys more on structured deals to get them access to dollars so that they don't uh, have to. Uh, get rid of their BTC. So, I mean, we're doing trade finance, we're doing structured products, swaps uh, that allow these guys access to dollars to grow their business uh, without necessarily uh, selling their BTC. Does all the volume that comes through OTC desks around the world, is that included in the coin market caps 24-hour volume metrics? Or is there a different way to see all the volume that's actually coming through OTC desks? Or is it are we all just blind to it? No, no, I think that one's that one's a little bit of a tough question. I mean, I think everyone's going to have their own opinion on it, but I, I look at the largest o- OTC participants as guys who have their own supply of uh, of crypto, and so many of them are are just frequently matching buy and sell orders daily, looking at their net exposure, and you know uh, managing that risk internally. Some of it they might cover, some of it they might hold. So to be honest with you, I, that's one that one's really tough. I, I'm not really sure if it's if it's accurate. I don't think as much of it is going out onto exchange as, as people might think. So I think there's a fair share of it that, that doesn't touch coin market cap or exchanges. Interesting. So like, would you call Blockfills a market maker? Is that an accurate statement? Yeah. So actually, uh, the best way to look at us is a, a liquidity provision technology company in the crypto asset space and a market maker. So we do make our own prices uh, in certain places with certain participants, but really our job is to create uh, a professional institutional venue for uh, people to do business and and manage risk and and execute trades. And so really we provide a a front-end trading platform, an API uh, for access to our liquidity, and we aggregate liquidity from a number of non-exchange uh, participants that we have exclusive or semi-exclusive arrangements with. And uh, we make that liquidity available to uh, to clients directly. Okay, interesting. So would you say that your firm is direction neutral in regards to price? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Blockfills is not uh, taking a ton of principal risk uh, on occasion. Um, on, a, on a one-off OTC deal, it, it's possible that we might. Um, what is but, principal risk? Meaning, like you go long Bitcoin? Yeah, right. We like we would actually take on the risk of the direction there, and we would trade against the counterparty, and we would hold that position. Okay. Most of what we do is all back-to-back trading. So imagine, just like people do with OTC, they buy from one counterparty, and that counterparty manages their risk however they choose to do that. We're essentially uh, back-to-backing trades between our clients and our counterparties. So it's, it's riskless. Uh, and you're just making, us. you're just making money off the spread. Um, yeah, we'll make money on spreads and we'll make money on trading fees. So just like an exchange charges uh, a trading fee to do business on electronic liquidity, our venue is an electronic liquidity provision uh, venue. So we do charge electronic trading fees um, for for groups that are you know high volume players, uh, there are some groups that ask for all in net prices, and we, we we can deal that to them electronically. And there are some clients that only trade with us OTC. And essentially, what we do there is when they make a, a price with us, we execute it on our system internally, and uh, and basically you know back to back that trade like we would normally in an electronic fashion. Cool, that makes sense. I imagine. I mean, since you guys started a 
crypto firm, you guys are generally like bullish on the long term of Bitcoin. Is that is that an accurate statement? Um, yeah. So uh, more broadly speaking, we're we're super bullish on digital assets, right? Uh, I feel like there's not- probably a, a mega temptation to like get longer and longer every opportunity you see. <laughs> well, I mean, running a business like this, uh, you, you do uh, at times uh, end up owning, you know, a, a little bit of crypto one way or another, or, you know, in some cases we might, we might hold a lot of it. Um, so there are definitely times where we're exposed um, and we do have our own, you know, our own perspective and sentiment on, on you know, how long we want that risk to, to be held. Um, but we do, you know, we are traders at heart you know, we, we do hedge most of our risk. So, you know, I wouldn't say that we're a firm that likes to speculate on whether Bitcoin's going up or down long-term. Uh, we, we are, you know, bullish digital assets in a big way. We think, you know, it's here to stay. I think blockchain technology is not going away, but to, to sit here and say, we want to, we want to take a significant risk on Bitcoin, uh, every day is not, uh, is not accurate. Let's back it up just for a second. There's some people that are listening right now that aren't traders, but might be interested in becoming one in the future. Let's talk. Uh, let's just define a few terms real quick. What is a market maker, and what is a counterparty? Sure. Uh, so, so to start with a counterparty, uh, it, it would be someone that you're you're facing off against, you're trading with. So, in our ecosystem, to make it simple, our counterparties are the people we source our liquidity from. Our clients are people who uh, onboard with Blockfills uh, through AML KYC, uh, become a client, and that client uh, is allowed to execute against our counterparties' liquidity in our ecosystem di- directly against face. Uh, sorry, against uh, uh, Blockfills. So what we do is we sit in the middle. We do not let our clients and our counterparties trade against one another. We basically uh, execute that trade with the client, and then we go and execute uh, our back-to-back trade with our counterparties. And so our counterparties in this instance are liquidity providers, and our clients are, are people who are looking to buy and sell digital assets. So uh, so that that's... So if we just ahead. use an analogy to make sure I understand correctly, so the clients are kind of like blackjack players, and you guys would be... Uh, the dealer essentially, and then the other blackjack players would be the counterparties. Is that correct? Uh, or the or the house, right? Because the house is absorbing the risk, yeah. right? So the the counter the counterparty is taking all the risk here. We're essentially just making a, a medium of exchange for the counterparties to to be able to show their risk and another client to be able to execute against it. Okay, cool. So the counterparty is the house. You guys are the dealer. Clients are the blackjack players. Yep. So in this instance, our counterparties are the market makers. So a market maker is anyone who is uh, making uh, price discovery uh, in any particular asset class uh, or pair. So if you're talking about Bitcoin against dollar, you know, a market maker is someone who's showing you a, a price on both the buy side and the sell side to purchase or sell uh, Bitcoin and get dollars in return for that or you know, dollars to, to, to buy Bitcoin and get Bitcoin in return for that. Very cool. Is there ever like, have you ever heard from a miner if they are going to lever up, like go, go longer than they already are, or do they already have too much like risk exposure? No, there's definitely times where these guys, uh, th- these guys utilize derivatives, uh, to, to gain, 
uh, exposure to uh, one side of the environment or another to leverage their balance sheet so that they can grow, but also, you know, basically, you know, get leverage to, to grow their business and, and hold their Bitcoin. So uh, I would say that, you know, there's a lot of times people for the last couple of years have been out in the space talking about miners sell Bitcoin, you know, in droves and in huge amounts. You know, I would say that's highly inaccurate. The experience that we have is that you know they absolutely want to keep uh, their Bitcoin uh, for as long as they can. Uh, that's what they're in business for, and so right. they frequently sell as little as they can to to stay uh, in business and and lever uh, their balance sheets to be able to grow. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Um, the miners are more bullish than you. Uh, in many, many senses, I would say that, but there's definitely some seriously bullish people out there. <laughs> Just to detract again, real quick, I want to talk about why a liquid market is really, really important and provide another analogy for our listeners. So imagine a liquid market with market makers, like what Bitcoin, like what Ethereum and many others have. That's like going to Walmart. You have the shelves greatly stocked, no matter if you want 24 rolls or 24,000 rolls of toilet paper, you can order it right there. It's all going to cost you pretty much the same price. However, an illiquid market or something that doesn't have a market maker on it is going to be more like a gas station in Venezuela. You might find a loaf of bread. Jesus. You might find a loaf of bread. It might cost you, you know, $13. It might cost you $100. You have no idea. And you're going to say, oh my God, I can't believe I have to pay that price for a loaf of bread. Or they may say, well, this loaf of bread is uh, $5, but if you want more than one, it's going to cost you $20 because the scarcity of this bread in that region. And that would be called slippage or a spread. So these are things that market makers take care of. So all the buyers have enough to buy at a fair price. Super, super important. I love that. That's really well said. Yeah, very well said. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about some of the... um, Actually, before we move on to this next question, let me just ask you real quick, who is the most prominent traditional institution that's playing in our space right now? What are they up to? What are they doing? Mm, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to talk about stuff like that. <laughs> okay, no worries. Um, no worries. Let's know, move th- right along. There's, there's probably a, a strong list of, of, of 10. Uh, some are more vocal than others, but um, th- there are some really great uh, institutions playing in the space. Uh, we're really encouraged by that. You know, we, we speak to these guys, uh, frequently, uh, we, we work with a number of them. And I think the idea here is that, you know, when you look at market making, like you said, in in its importance in in price discovery for any asset class, uh, you know, you, you have guys like us that come from principal derivatives trading, you know, here in Chicago at all the major exchanges, uh, you know, that are in all the, the primary asset classes, and, you know, the rest of our partners here at Blockfills are, you know, ex-heads of uh, Forex uh, at, at banks, uh, hedge funds, et cetera. You know, we think price discovery is so important. And so, you know, our approach in late 2017 and all of the last two years was, you know, providing uh, fair and, and transparent pricing for, uh, you know, developing asset classes. And so, you know, the idea here is to focus on these really prominent institutions and what they do and how they do it and make sure that it's standardized and fair and equitable and safe uh, in this space. And, and I think that our, our solution is attractive for many of them. And, and we, like to, we like to think that 
as we grow things, uh, we'll make new products and services available uh, to those types of clients. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, for what it's worth, like, you know, everybody has their own theories and stuff. I definitely think that like with Facebook's entrance into the crypto market, like I got to imagine they have some type of dark pool or, you know, trading desk. It would only make sense to me, but no sense in speculating on any of that. What are some of the other world events and like macro policies that are going that that are, you know, unfolding, whether it's negative interest rates or QE and all that kind of stuff? What do you think is the most like influential or significant thing that is happening in the world that is causing Bitcoin prices or crypto asset prices to fluctuate? Yeah, I'll I'll tell you what, I'm not exactly sure at this point that Bitcoin uh, is a mature enough market for us to say that uh, those world economic policies and, and, you know, geopolitical risks are actually moving markets uh, per se. I would say that the better way to look at it is like, look at Africa. If these people are unbanked, uh, digital assets is how they get banked, right? And so if we're looking at the digital asset space as a whole, I think Bitcoin right now, it's it's largest influence in price discovery is how many people can get access to it and the constraints at which their governments uh, make it possible for them to have these assets. So, you know, the world events of, you know, rebellion in in the the Hong Kong, China regions, uh, acceptance versus rejection of these products. Uh, if you look at um, you know Africa, like we talked about, if you start to look at the negative interest rate landscape and in you know big wealth globally that's that's sitting in banks, you know not making any money, I think people are looking at allocations into to stuff like Bitcoin, back into gold, you know different things like this. And if you look at, I just got a, a, a document from a, a leading VC uh, and fund in the digital asset space. Uh, gold's a, about a seven point five uh, trillion dollar market, and I think if you look at Bitcoin, it's what two hundred ish, two hundred ish billion. And we said, look, if you can transfer some of uh, that market share into this market share, imagine what it could do, right? And so, if you look at this space, I think uh, the unbanked and the the discrepancies that are taking place globally in the the fairness of banking. Uh, I think that's where you're seeing the the demand for for Bitcoin and other assets like this. Very, very interesting. I never thought about that. Uh, can you give us a high level what's going on with the trade wars and the currency wars between China and the U.S.? Like, we haven't really heard any kind of credible news source. So I just wanted to get your opinion on someone that works with money every day. What's your take on it? Yeah, are they really trying to like race to devalue their currencies? And how does that affect the average consumer? Well, I think it's kind of interesting. If you look at, you know, the difference between, you know, Q, you know and I think this is one of the other things you guys might want to dive into is the difference between QE and, and what's happening now is really that uh, they don't have much of a choice um, as other economies are already into a negative interest rate territory. Um, and, and you look at what's happened to the dollar from the beginning of 2019 until now, and that price ceiling and floor that we're experiencing or or where the government in the U.S. seems to take action, um, it, it really starts to show me that it's not like they're racing to devalue the currency. It's, it's almost like they have no other choice. And uh, to, to, to do that, 
is what fuels the the consumer growth still and and keeping uh, growth in such a way where economies can evolve. Because if you if you did turn that off, I think you'd find that um, it just comes to a screeching halt. Uh, and you know, so, so that's kind of what I'm seeing. And it really, if you just pull up a, a chart of the U.S. dollar <laughs> and you look at where the dollar started to move this year, September, uh, where the, the market for the dollar was in, in beginning of 2019 versus looking back in, in 2016, I think you'll, you'll really start to just paint the picture of, of where you see the government start to intervene and how that affects rates. And now the difference between how it affected rates before versus where the government's taking action now uh, in their bond purchase program. So it's super interesting. Uh, it's a total game of chess, uh, but I think that's you know what I'm seeing. It's it's not really a a race to devalue. It's 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 forced devaluing uh, because they they really don't have a lot of other choices. That is insanely fascinating. <laughs> yeah, pull pull up pull up a dollar pull, pull up a dollar chart when you when you get a chance and look at where the government started to intervene again uh, after raising rates and and you'll you'll see that there's this nice little window where they're participating in <laughs> and it's a wall. And if it goes any different than that, uh, things start to get dicey. And how does that affect the average person? I know that you need to keep the economy going because if you don't, you know, you lose jobs, but you also devalue the savings. Is this just kind of the lesser of two evils? Yeah. Well, that's, it's really tough for me to say because uh, the, how it affects the consumer in different geographies is vastly different, right? You know, how it's affecting China and how it's affecting us is, is so different. In our, in our economy, uh, the last recession we saw was, was credit infused in a, in a mortgage sense, right? Now, if you look at the health of the, the U.S. homeowner uh, fr from a standpoint of the housing economy, the housing economy is in a completely different state than it was, uh, you know, back in 2008. Uh, today, if you look at China and India, and, you know, what China's planning for for the next 10 or 20 years, you know, they, they don't have a lot of choice but to keep the, the consumer growing if they, if they don't. Hey guys, TiVo here to tell you about the Eufy Video Lock, a smart lock, a 2K camera, and a doorbell all in one. That's right, three in one for triple the security. It's easy to install. All you need is a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. It gives you keyless entry, so no more fumbling your keys when you have your hands full coming back from the grocery store. No more worry about the kids losing a house key. No more worry about a guest losing the house key or forgetting the passcode on your door. And for Airbnbers, it's a no-brainer as you can change the passcode at will between renters. It has available fingerprint recognition and it has AI self-learning chips. So the more you use it, the more accurate it's going to be. You will have no anxiety with the battery charging. It is a rechargeable battery and it lasts around four months. But don't worry, when it's low, it'll give you plenty of weeks notice. And also, it always comes with a physical key as a backup. There's no monthly fee, unlike other brands that charge you a monthly fee to get your backup recording. Recordings, they're always recorded locally and you will always have access. Customer support for the Eufy Video Lock is 24-7, so you don't have to worry about any issues you have, and it comes with an 18-month warranty. What I love about this product is it is truly all-in-one. With the three-in-one, you don't have to go out and buy multiple parts. It's all in this package with the Eufy Video Lock. So if you're interested in learning more, go on Amazon and search Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock. Get complete control over your front door.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. I mean, it completely shuts down. Uh, the, the growth of their economy for the next 10, 20, 50 years. And, you know, those are plans that, that China looks at different than, than how we do. I mean, I, I just read something the other day uh, from global uh, aircraft manufacturers saying that like every 10 years, air tourism doubles, doubles in size, right? And so China's looking at building airports the size of some cities. And they're saying, how, wow. how can we get the people that have never ridden in an airplane or traveled anywhere outside of, you know, mainland China, we're going to get them access for the first time to being able to afford flying. Right. And so what will that mean for tourism? What will that mean for access to air travel and, and, and demand in China? And it's just, it's crazy. I mean, I, I, I definitely encourage people to look this stuff up. And to me, that's how you get a picture of how it affects the consumer. If, China can't continue to grow and stuff like that gets put on hold. I mean, it absolutely makes it impossible for people who are trying to get out of poverty or rise into different classes, uh, access to certain things uh, that other people in the globe have had access to for 30 years. That's awesome. And there's something earlier that you mentioned that I wanted to kind of circle back on because it's just something that nobody talks about, nobody knows. But you said the government is buying back bonds. Is that correct? Can you talk a little bit about that? They're buying and they're repurchasing bonds. So they're, they're buying bonds at the short end of the curve uh, in the U.S. Treasury complex and they're repurchasing uh, you know, bonds. So there, there's kind of like a twofold program here that they've started on since September. Can you, can you just go into that? So are you talking about you know, they're buying uh, two year, like the government's buying their own debt to get that yield. Yeah, certainly. Is that what's happening? Yeah, certainly they've been, they've been financing this for a number of years. That was part of the QE program. But what they were doing back then was they were focusing on, on the, the back end of the treasury curve, which was mortgage rates because everyone was in shambles during the mortgage crisis. Right. So they were, they were bailing out banks. They were bailing out, you know, uh, housing, they were bailing out everybody in the credit sector that, you know, that was a consumer that, that owned a home. Right. And this was the government that was doing it with 
you know, what money? I mean, they were just printing money. They were printing money and they were buying bonds, right? And so that's where you see our debt come from, right? And so today they're buying shorter term treasuries. And the reason for that is the back end is stabilized. The housing market is stabilized. And now you're seeing the, the curve invert, right? And that's, that puts a direct pinch on you know, the financial institutions that they help bail out. And it puts a pinch on, on, on you know, the government. Right. And so what they're doing is uh, they're buying the front end of the, the, the treasury curve to, to make sure that, that that lower end of the curve interest rate and Fed funds doesn't invert. And it, what, what happened in, in September was uh, money markets and overnight lending rates started to seize up. And when that occurs, all the banks that are lending uh, each other money overnight to, to, you know, just to basically borrow money to make sure that their balance sheet is straight as they're dealing with, you know, money that they lend out and um, money that they need to settle uh, in, the, in the Forex complex. Uh, they basically borrow money from each other overnight. And when they stop trading with one another, it means that there's a shortage of, of, of money out there. Right. And so the government literally needs to print money <laughs> They need to go out and buy these these short term rates, and they need to basically inject uh, the 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 banking sector with overnight lending money. And uh, I feel like we keep getting whipsawed. Like I feel like we're always talking about oh, there's too much money in the ecosystem, and you know the more money there is, it's it means that the money that you hold is less valuable. But then we see instances like this where you talk about the repo interest rate goes up, you know, 10% for overnight lending because there's not enough money in the ecosystem. It just has us questioning, like, what is it? Is there too much money? Is there not enough money? Yeah. I mean, that's uh, a capital that's certain, flight. What's going on? Certainly above my pay grade, uh, when it comes to government, uh, <laughs> government movements. But, you know, I think that it's a, it's a balancing act always, right. Is they went out and saved one area uh, of the economy, uh, in a big way. And it encouraged uh, risk taking for a number of years now, right? You know, cheap money, go out, invest, you know, grow the economy, et cetera. But I think they expected all that to create inflation and asset valuation to increase. And really, um, we've only seen uh, some of those tangible assets grow in value in certain sectors or in geographies. Um, And then if you look at, you know, equity markets, that was where the, the, the most risk taking took place. You've got other governments printing money and buying U.S. equities with it. And so, you know, now it becomes look at the fixed income market and the fixed income market is telling you that, okay, reserve ratios at banks are strong. Okay. Uh, housing market is safe. Uh, you've got U.S. equities, maybe, maybe even a little bit overheated. And now you got to look at fixed income and you got to say, well, who's, who's getting pinched here? And it's, it's governments. Governments are getting pinched. They're in negative interest rate territories and uh, being able to keep money in the system appropriately between the governments and the banking uh, sectors that, that keep uh, all these consumers and in, in the economy running is a, is a heavy balancing act. Wow. Okay. Very cool. Um, this is like probably one of the most informative episodes we've ever done. So thanks for shedding so much light on, on how all this stuff works. Next time you guys should get an economist on here. Cause, uh, what what has just been said is basically, uh, I can't go any further. (laughs) I've got nothing, I've got nothing left. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform every year. And they're some of our good friends and they're a great sponsor. Uh, U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets and your fees are extremely transparent. So if you're not ready to trade yet, 
Uh, you could also practice building your portfolio with the eToro virtual trading feature. They give you $100,000 of virtual money and you could start playing around with it um, and not have to risk any of your real money before you get comfortable with the markets. And best of all, you can connect with 12 million other eToro traders around the world, kind of like a social network for trading, uh, to discuss charts and all things crypto. So go ahead, create an account today at eToro.com slash crypto 101. That helps us, that helps you, that helps them, and makes everything possible here if you guys use that link. So guys, start building your portfolio the smart way. eToro is crypto trading made easy. All right, back to the show. Well, we're going to move straight along. Um, there's a big, ev- this is just, you know, going to flip flip the script here. So there's a big event coming uh, called the halving in Bitcoin. And this happens every four years about, and it's about to happen in May, 2020. So I know that we're not allowed to talk about um, forward-looking statements or prices, but historically what has happened in the months leading up to the halving, like maybe call it three months leading into the halving and three months out of the halving, like historically what has happened yeah i mean i think i think that one the, the three-month landscape is even a tough a tough one to answer because i think i think if i were to dive back into it and forgive me i didn't do too much research on it uh for for a three-month uh time frame but i think what you find is that the market was fairly sideways um so i think what i'm looking at is the year leading up to the having the year and a half the two years leading up to the having which has been historical uh, historically bullish um, and I don't know that it's been directly related to the having. I think it's been demand uh, cycles that have occurred in in Bitcoin uh, and and how it how it touches more and more people globally uh, just in that cycle. And it just so happens that the having has come shortly after that. So right now, you know, I, I'm not sure what the having is going to do. I can tell you that difficulty is going up, you know, pretty pretty rapidly uh, weekly, and I think it's around 5.2 percent uh, on, on a weekly basis or bi, you know biweekly basis. Um, you've got a lot of which means more miners are joining the network, right? Yeah, it's it's making it harder to mine in Bitcoin, right? And so, uh, yeah, absolutely, more mining rigs are on. You've got uh, a a little earlier this year, you've got the, the price move up that really encouraged these guys that were hanging in there to, to now go full force. You know, many of them were planning uh, during that, that price slump to how can we mine more? Do we have enough money to stay afloat? Okay, great. Let's mine as much as we can. And now as the prices are higher, they're just bringing more and more machines online. Uh, now you've got all the hardware manufacturers coming out with new units that are hashing higher than they ever have, consuming more power than they ever have. And you've got a lot of these guys pushing into North America where there's cheaper, more consistent, bigger power. And so uh, it, it's really uh, quite special. Uh, I do believe all of them have have financed uh, in a big way to put themselves in a position to weather any potential next storm. And so they're looking at mining Bitcoin and not getting rid of it. And so to me, if you just look at the demand and supply here, the more access people get to from good projects, uh, good countries, uh, making you know better regulation, better access to, to digital assets, I think it spells bullishness. I, I really do. Um, but I think it's gradual in nature. I, I don't I don't have any uh, assumption or opinion that says, oh, just because we're getting one month closer to the halving, I expect prices to, to surge. I definitely do not look at it that way. I think it's about, you know, 
where what countries are, are giving their people access to uh, to digital assets seamlessly? Um, you know, how many people are gaining access to the the able to, the ability to purchase Bitcoin, and how how many mining networks are are not selling Bitcoin? And so, you know, to me, that spells whether prices go up or go down. Um, but in the midst of all of that, there's a there's a very healthy market making community that now holds a, a very fair amount of digital assets. Same in the institutional space, and so uh, it depends on who's looking to to cash in on on some of their trades, or who's looking to hang on for what what looks to be a a, a, a decent asymmetric bet going forward into the future. Apart from Bitcoin and Ethereum, which tokens have the deepest liquidity and strongest institutional interest? And how does an institution grade a digital asset to decide whether it's good or not? Hmm. You know that one's that one's tricky. I think um, I think it, again, it's about uh, who it's touching, who it's reaching, and how it's being applied. So I think you know in the past there's been you know a fair amount of uh, participation in, in Ripple XRP. Um, I think you've got a lot of people that moved into stable coins because it has a purpose. Um, I think that you know our goal is to see some of uh, some of that stablecoin business go into gold-backed business uh, of ours. Um, and then I think you've got guys looking at stuff like Maker uh, and, and DAO and how it differs from Ethereum and how their network distribution can uh, apply adoption. And you know, so I think that's where I see the the more institutional looks um, in protocols uh, that are, that are expanding. Um, I even know you know some some really really sharp guys and that are doing stuff in Tezos um, uh, with real estate already. And uh, so I think that that's another one. And going forward, you know, those are the kind of things that I think um, people are looking at uh, to to get you know big institutional participation. Um, but there, there's not a huge list, in, in my opinion. That's amazing. So, yeah, I, I actually just tweeted this out the other day because I think Maker is obviously brilliant. They're doing some some of the most innovative work in the space. But it just seems like, you know, for a, a top 25 coin, they just trade very little 24-hour uh, volume, you know, when you're compared to some of the other ones. Is that just because there's not a lot of supply offered? Mm, on the I market? think it's more about, um, you know, when people got into ether, mining ether, and owning ether and Ethereum-based uh, projects, I think the activity that came in ether was almost never meant to be there. Uh, but it was fueled by ICOs, right? It was fueled by guys who were making investments, right. liquidating investments, and there was arbitrage there, and people were actively trading it. I think today, Maker's goal is not to you know make sure maker is the most traded thing out there uh, on the global digital asset market i think their goal is to provide um you know adoption of the use of this for their network um and i think that it comes at a different time and a different place in uh in this ecosystem than where ethereum was being applied to projects cool okay that makes sense so i you mentioned just a second ago about your gold back product um, could you talk a little bit about you know what that is? And I know there's a there's a few of them out there. So kind of what maybe what makes yeah it absolutely. So uh, our gold token is called USG. 
uh, stands basically for U.S. Gold. Uh, what we did is we we worked with uh, a longstanding uh, American gold dealer that is uh, one of the few groups out there that has direct access to the U.S. Mint for the one ounce American Eagle Gold coin. Obviously, globally, one ounce Amer- uh, one ounce gold prices uh, are very identifiable. They're traded on global exchanges in derivative fashion, spot fashion, and so identifying one ounce. Uh, gold prices, I think, is really important uh, about the space. It's the most identifiable uh, unit of measure uh, on the global markets, in my opinion. And so um, what we did is we worked with the gold dealer in an exclusive JV, and uh, we tokenized the one-ounce American Eagle gold coin on the Ethereum network. Uh, It's an ERC-20 compliant token. So the differentiator here between USG and a bunch of other things that are out there on the market is that... um, when you buy a, a, a USG token, you're buying a one ounce American Eagle physical gold coin that is stored in a vault uh, in the United States, is backed by the US dollar, and is backed by the US government because the US Mint is the ones who creates these and distributes these. So you, you're getting the backing of the US dollar, the, the denomination of the US dollar, the backing of the US government, price discovery by the US government, and I'll go into that uh, more in detail in a second. What you see from a lot of the other participants is fractional ownership of some sort of physical piece. Um, And so they'll let you go buy uh, a small fractional $100 amount versus some some underlying index or underlying physical gold instrument. And so when you're using this as a payment rail, that's fine. That's great. But there's nothing that's really sturdy behind it backing it. What we can do is you can buy a USG token and you can fractionalize it on the ERC-20 blockchain. But you can do that for payment rails, but you can't redeem a physical, uh, you can't redeem a, a fractional amount of a one ounce American Eagle gold coin. So you can use the fractionalization for payment rails, but you can't redeem a one ounce physical gold, uh, sorry, a fractional uh, of a one ounce American Eagle gold coin. You can redeem, however, a physical one ounce gold coin. So if you own if you own one one USG, you own the rights to the redemption of a one ounce physical gold coin in a vault. And you can go to our redemption process and you can go ahead and fill out your information, validate your identity and the fact that you own a one ounce uh, a USG coin in your wallet and they'll validate and verify that and they'll go ahead and they'll work with the trust administrator and the custodian and United Parcel Pro or Brinks or whoever we choose to, to utilize their services for to logistically send that physical gold coin to you uh, if you so choose. If you want to keep it as a digital asset in your wallet and trade it against Bitcoin or trade it against fiat or trade it against another stable coin, you're always more than welcome to do that. And so BlockFills provides all of the liquidity against other digital assets. We provide distribution to other exchanges that we work for with uh, to, to get distribution on this. We work with custodians that hold this. And we're working with custodians and fund structures uh, and, and groups like Celsius where you can come in and you can get, uh, you can actually borrow against this. And in the future, their goal is to, uh, a number of these groups is uh, to allow you to buy our USG token, like you can Bitcoin, and put it up to generate yield in the lending market, just like you do your Bitcoin. So imagine today, if you were to buy a gold bar, 
is anybody going out there and letting you say, hey, uh, you got a gold bar. Uh, would you like to get, earn a yield on it? We'll, we'll borrow that from you and we'll, we'll make it fungible to other groups and we'll earn you a yield. Not that I know of, but in the digital asset world, we can do that. And it's easy and it's safe and custodians are a part of this. So uh, our goal in the future is to continue to make this ecosystem more robust so that groups like Celsius and Drawbridge here in Chicago can build tools around it for people to hold a gold-backed stablecoin that has price discovery from the underlying U.S. government uh, is very stable and they can earn a yield on their gold position. And, and we think that's going to be super uh, attractive to people in the future. If I read this somewhere in a blog, I would say it's completely unbelievable and futuristic. Yet there it is. Here it is right there. So right before our eyes. So wow, <laughs> great job. That's incredible. So that that's got me thinking while you were talking, yeah. you know, what is the future of commodity or asset-backed crypto after the American Eagle Gold coin? Like what what what's coming next? Yeah, so actually um there's a there's a great group here in Chicago that we have close ties to called uh Zaner Precious Metals. Uh Zaner Precious Metals uh has a Zaner digital group um that that's out mostly in Asia. Uh but they actually were uh, a, a helper on the Ampersand project which is tokenizing silver and and uh and the the mining community for for silver, right? So we're we're thinking that uh you know, people getting access and exposure to raw metals um, through perhaps uh, mining, uh, mine, mine financing. Um, we think that there's there's some interesting ways that people can uh, can earn from uh, commodity-backed stablecoins in the future or commodity tokens. Uh, we're also already seeing guys tokenizing real estate, uh, so not necessarily in the commodity realm, but uh, tons of people now getting private assets. Uh, to get liquidity on them and perhaps uh, create financing structures. Uh, you know, like I said about those guys uh, doing real estate on the Tezos blockchain, they're getting people, uh, you know, returns on, on their investment through staking uh, on Tezos, uh, and, or sorry, uh, baking on Tezos, um, but, but staking through, you know, anything else. So, I mean, these are the kind of things that I, I, I see in the future. Uh, as being a huge opportunity. Uh, the crypto lending space in BTC is super saturated, in my opinion. And so creating commodity-backed uh, digital assets that people can go out and earn yields on so that other people can trade it and provide you know, transparent, liquid ecosystems uh, for trade, I think it's fantastic. And trade finance in commodities is massive. So what I just talked about there uh, could go... Uh, you know, deeply into the future on other commodities uh, in the trade finance sector. Brilliant. Well, you know, we, we've got a couple last questions for you here. Uh, don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you got a big meeting to go to here in just a sec. So one of the questions that we like to ask every guest that comes on the show is, is simple. It just, you know, at besides your company, uh, what is another company in the space that inspires you and that you think is just doing some groundbreaking work? And we already talked a little bit about Maker and Tezos, so we'll pass on those those folks too. Yeah. So uh, outside of guys like that, I mean, one of the best uh, developments that we've seen, uh, and remember that we're institutional traders, right? So, you know, things that kind of excite me probably don't excite a lot of people. <laughs> sure. No, that's, but, that's good. We want that perspective. <laughs> but we, we have an absolutely uh, fantastic relationship with a company called Fireblocks in the space. Uh, we think Fireblocks has created 
um, really a, a set of tools and, um, and opportunities for um, large institutions um, to, to actually solve problems in space. So, I mean, if you look at like a group like BitGo, who came out, you know, early in the space, uh, they look to me like they're seizing. And, you know, the, the tools that they're providing are the same tools that everybody else is providing from in a, in a little bit more uh, archaic nature. You see Anchorage coming out and Anchorage has, you know, a little bit savvier, uh, you know, savvier way of doing things. And they've got, you know, the, the special guys from Silicon Valley that are backing it. And so it gets a lot of attention and a lot of adoption. Right. But if, when you get down to the nitty gritty. If you look at Fireblocks and the MPC technology that they're using and the tools that they're actually providing, you know, digital asset traders to utilize is the absolute future of the space. And um, what you're going to find is that, you know, in, in Bitcoin and in Ether and, and, you know, all these other, you know, cryptos that people like to trade now, that's just this really tiny market. When you, when you think about digital assets, you're, you're going to get into you know, stocks, uh, digital securities, et cetera, right? And when you get into that space, you've got institutions out there already that, uh, that custody their own assets, right? They've got their own books. They've got prime brokers. They've got banks, right? And so the technology that Fireblocks is using is applicable to all types of institutions out there and giving them the power to keep safety of their assets on their own books under self-custody rather than using outside custodians. So the custodian space to me is saturated. There's only a couple of really, really dominant, you know, players that everybody's going to want to utilize. And then when you get outside of it, we're talking about custody tools for institutions that go way beyond Bitcoin. And Fireblocks is that company. They got an investment from Fidelity uh, and a number of other groups. We were using them in beta while they were still in stealth. Uh, a number of other great prominent groups in the space uh, utilize their technology and their, their services and products. And uh, what we're doing next with them that we're going to roll out this quarter is going to be a first of its kind in the space. And uh, I think the type of technology they're using for the future of institutional crypto adoption is absolutely uh, an integral part of the future. And uh, I certainly applaud them for all that they do for the space. I'm so glad you brought them up because one of the things that keeps me up at night is the fact that, you know, as we always said in the space, not your keys, not your crypto, but we're moving into uh, a time now where security is harder than ever. And even some countries now are passing regulations saying that if you're a fund manager, you have to have a third-party verified custodian to hold your funds because they just simply decided they don't want to trust people with their own money anymore, which is insanely anti-crypto, but this is the world that we're living in now. So what do we do? How do we self-custody but have the confidence of a private custodian? So hopefully Fireblocks is the solution to that. Well, you know, I think first and foremost, you, you look at uh, what we were struggling to find bef before uh, we actually knew Fireblocks was coming out um, was we were struggling to find a solution that made sense for traders, right? Uh, all the guys that we work with, they're they're not the the buy and hold guys, and we have some of those for sure. But they're the guys that are constantly moving assets and are continuously responsible and accountable for their own actions. Right? These are guys that take risk. They know how to manage their risk, and for that, they're not going to pay a custodian to manage their assets. They're never going to do it. It'll never happen. 
they're going to take responsibility for their own actions. It's, it's their assets, right? So when you look at that, Fireblocks came out and listened. I mean, they, they talked to us and they said, what are you seeing in the space? And we told them, and Michael is a, a fantastic listener. He it has a great team and their team constantly uh, rolls out things, uh, products, and, and, and certain pieces of technology that they've heard from their clients. And, they're, and that's something that I really think that nobody else is doing. If you look at custodians, they're like, here's my product, take it or leave it. I'm a custodian, right? And, and these, the custodians, they only cater to the business like hedge funds that absolutely need a third-party custodian to manage those assets, right? But these guys actually listen to their clients, they take from that and they build tools that actually work. They make operating efficiencies, they make things safer. They make it so that it's harder to make mistakes. And these are the things that are absolutely uh, integral to, to growing this ecosystem. And so um, you know, that's how we feel about that. And then when you get into the much bigger space, which is digital assets, and when that regulation comes, and who the people in the space that are going to have the greatest benefit uh, when that comes, these guys are going to need tools like this because they don't have it built, and they're not going to go build it. They're going to go look for the best technology in the space that's backed by you know, a major, major institution, and that's Fireblocks. And so um, I really, really uh, continue uh, to work hard on, on different things with them. And, and what we're going to roll out here uh, next, I think everyone's going to be really, really happily surprised by. Uh, it's the things that people have been waiting for for a year plus in the space, and it's finally going to get delivered. So you know, we'll keep you guys posted on that, maybe give you guys a first look at, at announcing yeah. it. And, Neil, uh, I was going to say, I'd appreciate the introduction to those cats. And I, I was literally took the words out of my mouth. I, mouth I'd love to do like uh, an exclusive or something. So we'll, we'll back channel on that. Yeah, totally. So, you know, that, that's my thoughts there. And, you know, there's a lot of other people that are building all kinds of things to support blockchain that I look, I don't even understand. And, you know, they, they have fantastic companies out there and whatnot. But this is the stuff that hits home for our business and people we do business with. And I, I can't thank them enough for, you know, all the good things they do for the space. Beautiful. Last quick question before we let you go. If this was the very first podcast that somebody in cryptocurrency was listening to, What's one word of advice that you would give to a novice cryptocurrency guy? It's really one sentence. It's, it's do your own research, take your time, evaluate the risks of who, what, and where you take risk with or at. If you're looking to fund your account in an exchange, you better know everything about how that works and understand the risks that you're taking. If you're trading with someone, you better know, you know the reputability of who you're trading with. And when it comes down to it, uh, you know, if, if, if you're you know, gambling in this business with, with uh, money of yours, you better do you, you know, your, your own research. You better take your time. This, for, for as fast as this uh, ecosystem moves, if you sit back and take your time, you'll find that it's all right there in front of you and uh, you can take your sweet time and make your decisions and you're not missing out on a thing. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, couldn't have said it better, Neil. And couldn't have been more thrilled to have you as a guest. This was, was very enlightening and can't wait to have you back someday in the future, man. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thanks so much for having us, guys. Uh, happy to be on anytime and uh, look forward to working with you guys in the future. Thanks again, Neil. I've learned so much today. We will definitely be in touch. Can't wait to see you again. All right. Talk soon, guys.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.